QuackCast212. Yes, I remember it well. A COVID-45 retrospective. Hey guys, I'm back. Been five years, but for a variety of reasons, I've started blogging again at Science-Based Medicine. And if I'm going to do a blog, I'm going to turn it into a podcast. So for the foreseeable future, maybe one a month, maybe more, unlikely less. We met at nine. We met at eight. I was on time. No, you were late. Ah, yes, I remember it well. We dined with friends. We dined alone. A tenor sang a baritone. Yes, I remember it well. From the movie Gigi with Maurice Salvalier and Hermione Gingold, who evidently went on to further fame in the Harry Potter series. That song is a classic demonstration of how my memory works at 65. Although I have to say that the song Thank Heaven for Little Girls from the same movie has become a little creepy. Dr. David Gorski recently asked if I was interested in doing an entry at Science-Based Medicine covering something related to COVID-45. I initially thought of saying no and then let the rest of this podcast be empty, but that would not work because obviously I said yes. For those that are new to the QuackCast, and are unaware of my bona fides, I'm an infectious disease doctor on my 36th and last year of practice. This podcast covers my memories and opinions of the last two and a half years of COVID-45. As my wife would let you know, my opinions are as reliable as my memories, so take what follows with a grain of dash. Is this too soon for a COVID-45 retrospective? Perhaps. I suspect COVID is going nowhere in my lifetime, as the current, likely undercounted surge indicates. But there are two endpoints that could mark the end of the COVID pandemic. One is that the infection goes away. I don't think that's ever going to happen. The other is when, as a society, we transition back to normal and at some level decide to live with COVID. I marked that point when the U.S. was back to normal when we resumed our mass killings. Sadly, it is back to business as usual. I do not see why COVID would vanish. One, its genetic plasticity is remarkable. So many mutations acquired so rapidly. I can't think of a virus that has been as effective as COVID at spitting out genetically divergent progeny. HIV was close. I have it in my brain, but can't find the reference that HIV, being like humans a sloppy reproducer, undergoes one mutation at every base pair during each replication in just one T-cells. That's a lot of mutations, since during active disease, millions of T-cells are infected. COVID seems to be right up there with its mutability. And even more spooky has been the Omicron variant, which came out of left field. While there was a genetic progression of the initial strain through Delta, Omicron came into the world like Venus, fully formed with, quote, more than 50 mutations when compared with the original SARS-CoV virus isolated in Wuhan, China, unquote. Omicron's origin is still a mystery, so who knows what other coronavirus is hiding in humans or animals, mutating away, waiting to jump into the general population. Kind of like what influenza does. It is also impressive how the R-naught, the number of people that each single infected person can be expected to infect goes up with each variant. 
I suspect that the increasing infectivity but not virulence is a result of our half-assed approach to COVID infection control. With semi-masking, semi-social distancing, and semi-vaccination, we have probably been selecting for more infectious strains of COVID. That has also been the case with HIV. In the old days, when patients would report hundreds or even thousands of sexual contacts, it was easy for HIV to get transmitted. With safer sex, only the more infectious and likely more virulent HIV gets through. COVID has gone from an R-naught of 1.5 to 7 or more. That ain't no measles, that ain't no pertussis, but that ain't no fooling around. Influenza, in comparison, runs an R-naught slightly less than 2. Infectious diseases have always been evolution in action, and evolution in COVID has been scary quick. That also raises the question, rather than half-assed COVID infection control, should we strive for no-assed or full-assed COVID infection control? The internet is silent on that topic. The other reason COVID is going nowhere is the relative lack of immunity after both vaccination and disease. The vaccine is still great for preventing severe illness and death, both good endpoints, but with emerging variants partly evading prior immunity and large, both in numbers and BMI, populations of unvaccinated people, the virus will continue to circulate probably forever. And Omicron, unfortunately, seems particularly good at causing reinfection. Unless COVID pulls an English sweating illness, which just disappeared. This was an illness from the 1600s and, quote, sweating sickness had disappeared by late Elizabethan times, its reign of terror barely lasting a century. But I would not hold my breath. Although not inhaling is one way to avoid COVID. President Clinton may have been onto something with that. The concept of herd immunity has always been a chimera. There is no such thing as natural herd immunity. There is no population where everyone is simultaneously infected and the herd becomes immune. And even if everyone was infected all at once, susceptible populations would keep being born. Herd immunity in humans can only happen when an entire population, such as the world did with smallpox, is vaccinated. You and I know that isn't going to happen in the remaining lifetime of the human species. So COVID looks to be a perfect storm for perpetual disease, genetic variation, marginal immunity, half-assed infection control, and a continuing susceptible population, like what we have seen for the last 500 years with influenza. As the French would say, plus c'est la même chose, plus c'est la même chose. Good news, though. Heat kills COVID, with 99% of the virus killed at 104 degrees Fahrenheit. So COVID will likely disappear in Phoenix and parts of India in the near future. Or it may mutate to become heat tolerant. I always try to look on the bright side of life. I thought at the start of the epidemic we would have one and a half million dead in the United States. And I thought one and a half million, while appalling, wasn't too bad, given that I had spent most of my career fretting about a recurrence of a 1919 influenza pandemic with a 5% mortality rate, or, flying spaghetti monster forbid, a bird flu variant, which, if it maintained virulence, could kill two-thirds of those infected. Not yet, maybe someday, but, as I say, always look on the bright side of life. Thanks to vaccines, we will eventually get to 1.5 million dead, albeit slower than I anticipated. 
The mRNA technology that has developed the COVID vaccine is amazing. And the speed at which they developed a vaccine that is both safe and effective still boggles my mind. It is a technology, I think, that would allow for the rapid development of vaccines to a wide variety of pathogens, to which we could then refuse to take. From what I can tell, there is no Omicron-specific vaccine, at least in animal models, where it adds nothing to the standard three shots. I don't know. I would still think that, like flu, the more the vaccine matches the circulating strain, the more benefit the vaccine would provide, depending on your endpoint, preventing disease or preventing spread or decreasing hospitalizations and death. If past is prologue, matching the vaccine to the virus should be a good thing. But again, as noted above, Omicron may be an exception. But I, for one, am a little tired of all the death. I started in infectious diseases in 1986, right when HIV was taking off. Remember, association, not causation. The first decade or so of my practice was spent watching a seemingly endless number of young men die of AIDS. And no one cared, or a few did. I think it was Randy Schultz who said something to the effect that if AIDS had killed young, freckle-faced children, people would have cared a lot more about the cause and treatment of AIDS. He was wrong. What COVID-45 has really brought home is large swaths of Americans don't give a rat's ass about anybody else. A country of Marie Antoinette's. Engage in behaviors that would slow the spread of a fatal disease. Qu'il mangeant du COVID. Like all infectious disease docs, I do prefer prevention over treatment. And preventing, or at least decreasing, the spread of COVID is simple. Mask and vaccine. Masks prevent the spread of COVID, maybe 10-15%. Vaccines prevent the spread of COVID, maybe 50% in families. It's not perfect, but what you learn in a lifetime of infection control is that there is never one intervention that stops the spread of infection. Prevention requires the sum of many imperfect interventions, and the results can be remarkable when done appropriately. For example, in my hospitals, we have virtually gotten rid of all hospital-acquired infections. We get maybe one a year. And that is by applying far more numerous interventions than masking and vaccination. I don't find either masking or getting the vaccine that big a deal. And unlike so many of my fellow citizens, I like knowing that I'm not going to sicken and kill other people. I cannot wrap my head around the idea that so many people feel otherwise. Until, of course, it comes back to bite them. But deathbed conversions, which I have seen on occasion, are a little too late. And really, most people look better with a mask on. Everybody looks good from the eyes up. Ugly and beauty reside under the mask. Someone I have known only during the COVID epidemic takes off their mask to eat, and I think, whoa. For aesthetic reasons, masks should be permanent. I mean, really, who wants to see my robust forest of elderly nose hairs? Or maybe I'm oversharing. The six-foot rule? I never really bought into that one. In the hospital where the infected patient is spewing infected droplets while lying in a bed and not moving in a room with hospital air handling, six feet of distance to prevent droplet spread is reasonable. The patient isn't going anywhere, and the air is being turned over rapidly. Air handling is why I likely didn't get COVID in the early months of the pandemic when I was seeing patients, but we were short on proper personal protective equipment. In the real world, 
I think of people like Pigpen, always in a haze of potential pathogens. In crowds, you are always moving in and out of each other's Pigpen pathogen cloud. It is also clear that air circulation can move infectious aerosols farther than six feet, adding yet another reason to avoid being downwind of some people. I think population density in a room is probably more important than distancing, and then just because there are likely to be fewer infected people in the room. I still shop at off hours and wear a mask when I am in the store. We tend to go out at off hours as well, although I see no point in wearing a mask at the pub. What is five minutes of mask wearing going to prevent during a 60-minute maskless meal? Besides, it is well known that hops, barley, and alcohol are potent antimicrobials, especially when using the XKCD method, and is so much more pleasant and better than ingesting bleach. I remember in the first months of the pandemic arguing with a radiologist who was emphatic that everyone should be wearing N95 masks and that it was obvious that COVID was spread by aerosols. I argued back that the CDC said otherwise, that COVID was spread by droplets. Much later, well, very much later, as radiologists got to work at home while I was seeing COVID patients wearing less than optimal PPE, I went back to the radiologist and ate crow. That was painful, and I'm still somewhat bitter at the CDC. For years, I saw people at the airport, often arriving from Asia, wearing masks. I always wondered if masking was beneficial. It is. Not only has influenza vanished with masking, but so did most respiratory infections. From the epidemiology so far, masks really should be standard during the URI season. But that's not going to happen either. The unusual aspect of COVID disease and death has been just how slow progression has been. Most patients are admitted around day eight, and if they die, it is often weeks into their illness. COVID is a disease that maximizes suffering for patients and their family. Slow suffocation alone in the ICU. An awful way to go. The slow course of the disease is also why interventions directed at the virus seem to do so little. As a clinician, I can't really tell that remdesivir or any treatment is doing all that much for COVID. And here is a secret when wondering if a drug is going to help treat an acute viral infection. Ask two questions. One, is the drug being given within the first two or three days of illness? And two, does it interfere with a specific biochemical pathway important in viral reproduction? If the answer of either is no, then don't expect the drug to work. Don't expect azithromycin or hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin to do squat. You knew ahead of time those drugs do not meet both those criteria and they would do nothing. That's how the world works. I have to admit I was surprised at how effective immunomodulation was for COVID. Acute COVID serum didn't work, likely because most patients received the serum too late in their course and about the time their own antibody response was kicking in. And unfortunately, giving serum did not produce any super soldiers. But steroids and other immunomodulators have been effective in treating the late inflammatory phase of COVID, and that surprised me. Because immunomodulation has had a dismal track record for most infectious diseases, it is nice to see it work. Usually the inflammatory process is too complicated for any single intervention to have much benefit. And we were fairly lucky in Portland. 
The hospitals were bursting at the seams with COVID, but it was not as bad as New York or other places where admissions overwhelmed resources. We got close, but no cigar. Still, COVID reinforced the understanding that the U.S. healthcare system is a Frankenstein's monster with the brain of Abby Normal. Delivering health care is usually an irrational pain in the butt. COVID made it all the more worse. I just wish we had a single payer. Then, instead of being screwed up in a thousand different ways, healthcare would be screwed up in just one way. And it is really was amazing just how foobar so much of the response had been. But then, lies and denial are a poor basis for tackling pandemics or wars. I've also found long COVID to be interesting, and upon reflection, it's probably not a surprise. The virus binds to the ubiquitous ACE2 receptors, so COVID has plenty of opportunity to damage a wide variety of organs and tissues. Identifying the cause of long COVID is a work in progress, but there are some explanations that I find more compelling than others. For example, I find the idea that chronic fatigue syndrome might be a form of human hibernation. Interesting. It fits CFS patients who do seem to be hibernating with the spring that never arrives. I like the idea that long COVID is due to vagus nerve damage. It nicely explains the symptom complex and perhaps explains why the syndrome persists so long. The nervous system is not particularly good at healing. But my biggest conclusion from the last two and a half years? Well, understanding reality is critical. Too many people prefer to ignore reality. Millions have died and even more millions have been sick as a result. The response to COVID prevention is very simple. COVID is relatively easy to combat. Many citizens, however, chose not to participate in both reality and COVID prevention and treatment. The behavioral changes required to combat climate change in our hot future are far more difficult, complicated, and expensive than what was needed to prevent COVID. There's absolutely no way we are going to step up to the plate in time. As a country, we can't be bothered with reality. We are so doomed. And on that cheery note, it's nice to be back. Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. And always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life If life seems jolly rotten There's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing When you're feeling in the dumps Don't be silly chumps Just purse your lips and whistle That's the thing Always look on the bright side Must always face the curtain with a bow. Forget about your seat, give the audience a grin. 
Enjoy it. It's your last chance and out. So always look on the bright side of death. Just before you draw your terminal breath. Life's a piece of shit when you look at it. Life's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true. You'll see it's all a show, keep them laughing as you go. Just remember that the last laugh is on you. And always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the right side of life. Come on, boy, cheer up. I said they'll never make that money back.